There's a lot of talk in our day, a tremendous amount of talk about unity in the church. Hardly a year goes by without someone launching some new organization designed to help Protestant denominations tear down the doctrinal walls that divide us so that we can all come together in peace and harmony. There are some who, for the sake of making a moral impact on our culture, would have us dismantle even the Reformation and set it aside altogether so that all of our, quote, theological quibbling, end quote, could be put aside for the sake of unity. They would have us rather focus our time and money and energy on issues that would bring our country back to a level of morality, which they say we once enjoyed. And perhaps we were a more moral people one day, and days gone by. But I wonder if that is the true goal of the church. And I wonder if that's what unity in the Word of God is all about. Many believe the reason unbelievers want nothing to do with the church in our day is because they see all the disunity among the denominations and they want to stay away. They think that if we could all just get everybody to get along, everyone who claims to be a Christian to accept one another's doctrine, carte blanche, and believe that everybody's perspective on the Word of God is equally true then somehow the gospel will become more appealing to the unbeliever. And somehow we would see a great awakening in our nation, the likes of which Jonathan Edwards only dreamed of. The problem with that, of course, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is very divisive. It's exclusive. It's uncompromising. It's intolerant of any religious view that suggests a way to God other than repentance and faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just the fact. In fact, it, is, it's, it's, it demands a radical repentance, a total trust, and a limitless loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So as long as the purveyors of the modern ecumenical movement continue to call for a unity that's grounded in something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, to that degree, their attempts will be futile and speculative and unachieved. True unity will remain forever out of reach so long as the means to that unity is anything but the gospel. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if all the churches in the world became, became amalgamated, it would not make the slightest difference to the man on the street. He is not outside the churches because the churches are disunited. He is outside the churches because he likes his sin, because he is a sinner, because he is ignorant of the spiritual realities of the Word of God. He is no more interested in this problem of unity than the man on the moon. And he's right. That's the real issue. The real issue is whether or not you have come to terms with God, whether or not you've been reconciled to God through the gospel. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. Because the only unity that God ever wanted us to enjoy is that blessed unity that is found in mutual submission under the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons it's called good news. It's good news because we are reconciled to God mutually. And in that reconciliation to God, we are reconciled to one another. It's good news. 
The only hope God holds out to unbelievers is that if they will put their entire weight, the entire weight of their eternal hope upon the sacrifice that Jesus made on their behalf, they will be saved. They will be reconciled to God and they will be incorporated into his body. They'll become a part of God's exclusive family, also called the Church of Jesus Christ and the Kingdom of God on earth. The great message of chapter 2 in Paul's letter to Ephesians is that men by nature are hopelessly divided among themselves, but in Christ, God draws them together in a unity of spirit that can be explained only in terms of the miraculous. How is it that Jew and Gentile can actually be loving each other instead of blowing each other up? Answer, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only that, if you're looking for true unity among the religions of the world and true peace among the nations, then we need to focus all of our time and energy and money on taking the gospel to the nations because it's our only hope. Not only that, but if you are searching for the one thing that will bring true peace and harmony, listen, to your home, and to your families, the only answer, listen, is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is pixie dust. Everything else is a fantasy. You don't need Oprah. You don't need Dr. Phil. In fact, you need to stay away from those people. Unless you just like pixie dust. Every other promise is a hollow promise. Every other attempt is a vacuous attempt. Every other offer is a banal, hopeless, useless, tintillating, but hollow offer. Every other strategy is a failed attempt. What God has given us is the truth of the gospel. And that's all we have. Because that's all we need. I want to show you this in the Word of God this morning. Because what we have is these verses, starting with verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Three things I want you to see here. Paul describes our unity in three terms. First of all, we are of God's kingdom. Secondly, we are of God's family. And thirdly, we are God's temple. We are God's kingdom. We are God's family. And we are God's temple. Notice with me. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are fellow citizens with the saints. When you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel, Paul says, according to Colossians, that he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Once you used to live as aliens and strangers, you know what an alien and a stranger is? It's a person who is living in a different country 
who is living by their passport and visa. They have the opportunity to see all the privileges and all the benefits that are enjoyed by the citizens of that nation, but they are not able to participate in those privileges and benefits. They are living, as it were, on a passport. They can see it, they can watch it, but they cannot be a part of it. Paul says, that's the way you were, you Gentiles, and all of you Jews who lived in unbelief. You see, the Jews used to say, we Jews are the special people of God. We alone have the prophets. We alone have the scriptures. We alone have the promise of the Christ. We alone have the temple. We alone are God's nation. And Paul is saying, not anymore. Not anymore. Now God has done something new. He's done something new. He's now grafted in the Gentiles to be a part of this olive branch, this olive tree. Now we are one in Christ. We are a single people. We are a single kingdom. And so whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile or whether you're black or white or male or female or slave or free or whatever else you are, you are now joint heirs with Jesus Christ, fellow citizens with the saints and our God's kingdom. You are united. You are united. And the basis for that unity is the gospel. Let me tell you something, folks. In all of the cries for unity today, most of those organizations that call us to unity go to John 17, to Jesus' prayer, and say, Oh, Father, that they would be one even as you and I are one. As if... The Lord Jesus, we're pleading, oh, I, I hope so. I wish I plead with you, Lord, do something. And that wasn't God's perspective at all. That wasn't Jesus' perspective. Jesus was about to die to produce that unity. That unity is not something that we make. It is something that we are given. It is something that was purchased with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The issue is not, do you as a Christian have unity with other believers? The question is, will you maintain it? You don't have to build it. You don't have to earn it. You must only maintain it. And how do you maintain it? The whole point of this message is simply this. You maintain it by the gospel. How did we get it? We got it by means of the gospel. I tell you, do you remember the person who led you to Christ? I bet most of you do, if you were led especially as an adult. Did you not, when you were led to Christ and for a long time afterwards, did you not feel a special bond with that person and with that church that led you to the Lord? Did you not know that unity on the moment that you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ? I submit that you probably did. And if that unity is no longer there, this is what happened. You forgot the gospel. You forgot the gospel. So those who are in Christ, those of us who are in Christ, know what true unity is because we are in God's kingdom. But in order to get a fuller understanding of this, we need to understand that it's not only a kingdom, it's a family. It's a family. Notice in verse 19. 
your fellow citizens with the saints, that's correct, and you are of God's household. The Greek word here is oikos. It means immediate family. In some cases it refers to others close to the family, but in most cases it refers to the immediate family. You are of God's immediate family. The idea of household is that we belong to God's own family. The family of God is not just God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The family of God is the three persons of the Trinity and anyone who is in Christ. That's God's family. You see, our king is not just our divine ruler. He is our gracious father. He's our father. He's our, and, and the word father typically is in the Aramaic in the New Testament. Abba which is one of the first words a child would say regarding the first name he would call his dad. Daddy. Daddy. I tell you, with twins in the house, you hear that all the time. Dada, 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 dada. Sometimes it's referring to the dog. Shasta and dada seem to sound alike. In fact, dada seems to mean a lot of things. Dada means feed me. Dada means change me. Dada means the dog is annoying me. Dada means... But the first word that a child will say in reference to their, their father is... Daddy, Abba. And so when Jesus was in the garden and he was crying out to God the Father, he said, Abba, Daddy, if this cup could pass from me, if there's any other way to accomplish our goal here, Dad, please, let's do it a different way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. His spirit testifies with our spirit, Paul says, so that we cry out, Daddy! Why? Because we now view him in a totally different relationship than what we used to view him. He's not our judge anymore. We don't think of him in terms of our judge. Perfect love has cast out fear. So that now we view him as our dad. Not in a cavalier way, not in a lackadaisical, disrespectful way, but in a deeply endearing, reverential way. It's an understanding of grace without moving into disrespect and licentiousness. We don't wear t-shirts that says, God is rad, he's my dad. Come on. Don't put that on your bumper on your window or on your t-shirt. Show some respect. On the one hand, we should never treat God with dishonor and disrespect and, and that kind of disrespectful familiarity. On the other hand, we should know deeply that the Father is my dad. That's how he views me as his precious, precious child. Paul is showing us that our relationship with God is not just national or political, but intimately personal. So when we meet other true believers around the world from other nations and ethnicities, we're, we're not only unified by a common set of spiritual laws, like in a kingdom, we don't, for instance, practice immorality, and we do meet together on the Lord's Day, and you know, we obey the, the law of Christ. We obey the Word of God. We share those kind of kingdom laws. But there's more than that when we meet together. 
When true believers meet together, whether they're from the same church or from different nationalities, different countries, we share more than just common spiritual laws. We share a common name. We are called Christians. We are called little Christs. We are called the children of God. And we have the authority to be called children of God. Because the Lord Jesus gave us that authority. And so we belong to Christ because the Father has adopted us. You remember Paul talking about that in Ephesians 1? He's adopted us as sons into his forever family by grace. And now all true Christians share in the royal bloodline, as it were, the blood of Christ, and are by grace heirs of all the rights and privileges that belongs to Christ. What is it that you need for your marriage, for your education, your schooling, for your relationship with your mom and dad, your relationship with your brothers and sisters? What is it that you need in order to do whatever it is God wants you to do? All of that is available to you. All of it is available to you. Now, this is not a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. This means what Paul was saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Everything you need for life and godliness, you find in Christ. That's what Paul's been saying all along. We are now not only a part of his kingdom, we are a part of his family. And as part of his family, now we are joint heirs. What is it that Christ has inherited from God the Father? That's what we have inherited. That's what we have inherited. Christians share true unity because we are a true family. We share the same Father. Not only that, but we live in a house that shares common foundations. Look at verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You see, true unity among Christians is not based on a common political agenda. I praise the Lord for the way the elections went this past time. But you know what? That's not what the church is about. That's not primarily what the church is about. God has not called us to be another special interest group. God has called us to be the kingdom of God. God has called us, yes, to be salt and light, but that salt and light is the gospel. It is both proclaiming and living the gospel. And so Paul says, this household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. True unity is not something that's based on feelings of tolerance and acceptance to everybody's personal opinions about God and human behavior. No true unity is based on the teaching of the apostles and prophets. In other words, true unity is grounded in the truth. It is rooted in sound teaching, sound doctrine. People say, man, doctrine is divisive. It is. In a very unifying way. It is divisive in the, set, in the sense that it sets aside anyone who is unwilling to submit to Christ. Yes, it is divisive. It is exclusive. It is intolerant. 
But for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is miraculously unifying. And the truth that is the bedrock of the entire Christian church is the truth of the gospel. That's why Paul says Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, we've already talked about this, but throughout this chapter, the term Christ Jesus himself, especially in the previous several verses, has been a reference uh, to the person of Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross. Namely, the work of redemption, which is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is simply this. Turn to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and find forgiveness and reconciliation with God. The person is the gospel. You cannot separate the two. You cannot say, I have a gospel without a cross. I have a gospel without blood. I have a gospel without the body of Christ. I have a gospel without the crown of thorns or the sufferings of Jesus. I have a gospel. There is no gospel. There is no gospel. The gospel is simply the proclamation of what Jesus did and how you need to respond to what Jesus did. That's the gospel. And it comes with a promise that if you will look, you will live. If you will believe, you will have eternal life. If you will trust, you will be saved. That's the gospel. It is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what, here's what Paul is saying. The cornerstone, you understand, is the foundation stone at the angle of the structure by which the architect fixes a standard for the bearing walls and the cross walls throughout the building. In other words, everything else in the building is set in place according to the standard that is set by the cornerstone. And that's the way it is in the church. Everything in the church and every person in the church finds its place, not by where it wants to be, necessarily, not by where it feels most comfortable, but by the bearing set for it by the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that sets the bearings for everything in the church. I tell you, when I was thinking about this recently, there are so many complex issues that we need to deal with in the church, in our relationships. But you know what? I think it really occurred to me this morning as I was praying through this. I think we fall off the beam. In one of two directions. When we're dealing with relationships that are in disunity, we fall off the beam in one of two ways. Understand now, the gospel is the cornerstone. It sets the standard for everything. Christ, his person, his work, his blood, all of that, everything that is encompassed in the gospel is the cornerstone. Here's what we tend to do. We tend to fall off the beam in our dealings with other believers in two ways. Either number one, we try to make things too simple. Or number two, we try to make things entirely too complex. On the one hand, the gospel demands 
that we forgive one another. Excuse me. On the, on the one hand, the gospel demands that we submit to the judgment of God concerning our own sin. There is no loosey-goosiness when it comes to the gospel regarding your sin. There is no um, neglect in the eyes of God. He doesn't wink at your sin. He never takes a bribe. He never sweeps it under the carpet. And so on the one hand, you can't come to God ever without dealing with your sin. And anyone who ever tries to come to God in kind of a loose kind of way, anyone who tries to affiliate themselves with the church and says, you know, I want to do that because I believe God is a loving God and God forgives all of my sins. But you know, I kind of want to hold on to this particular sin of mine. I've only got one or two that really plague my life, and I kind of like them, and I don't want to shake them. I really don't want to do business with them. Guess what? You are out of line with the cornerstone. The cornerstone, the gospel says, no way. You must deal with your sin. And to the extent that you are unwilling to deal with your sin, you are not ready to be unified or reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You must deal with your sin. And so we don't play fast and loose with sin. That's the first way to fall off the beam. But there's another way to fall off the beam. And this one may feel a little convicting, so prepare yourself. The other way we can fall off the beam is when a brother or sister comes to you, they know they've done you harm, and they confess their sin, that you look at them and say, that's not good enough. You missed one. In fact, I was thinking of a couple of more that you overlooked. And you need to confess those too. In fact, I've got a whole list here for you that you haven't confessed yet to my satisfaction. You need to get after it. You need to buck up. Don't you remember the law? You've blown it in your relationship to me. And I demand that you confess every little detail. Listen, folks, that's not what God did to you. That's not how God treated you. When you came to Him in faith, God didn't say, well, that's a good start. I accept your little measly confession. That's a good start. But it's not good enough. You need to get away for about a month and not sleep because you've got a lifetime of sin that you need to confess. No. You know what God did? God reckoned your faithful, broken heart as confession, as genuine repentance. As saving faith. You can't even remember all of your sins. And God, through the gospel, wiped them all out. I believe one of the reasons we don't have unity in the church like we should is not because God didn't give it to us, but because we have not maintained it according to the truth of the gospel. We have either, on the one hand, just allowed anybody to do their own thing, and we played fast and loose with sin because we don't want to address it in anybody else's life or in our own lives because it's just too uncomfortable, or 
We fell off the beam the other way, and we're requiring everyone that we know to measure up to some standard that we never measure up to. And we become a Pharisee. The whole church, I tell you, is built around the gospel. The point is, unity is based on that gospel. It's not based on anything. Through the gospel, we who are enemies of one another have now been made into one body in Christ. Together we are now God's kingdom. We are God's family. And finally, we are God's temple. Verses 21 and 22 says, In whom the whole building, this house, is being fitted together and growing into a, not just a house, but a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God. You see, beloved, in the Old Testament, the temple was where God revealed himself in visible form to the world. After the temple of Solomon was built, you know what happened? The Shekinah glory, the manifestation of God, came in a pillar of cloud and fire and descended upon the temple. And one of the tragedies of the Old Testament is when the prophet described what it was like on the day that God left the temple systematically. When the people sinned, the kingdom was divided, the people would turn their backs on God. The Shekinah, the the visible manifestation of God, left the Holy of Holies and moved out into the courtyard, left the courtyard, went to the Mount of Olives just like Jesus did, and then ascended to heaven. And the prophet said, just write Ichabod. Ichabod over the temple. The glory has departed. The church is supposed to be this repository of the glory of God. In the face of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, And coming to him, that is Christ, as a living stone, that's the foundation, the cornerstone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the church serves not only as that which manifests the glory of God to the world, it also serves as the place where sinners find atonement for their sins before God. In other words, God has called the church to be the means by which the gospel is brought to the world for the forgiveness of sins. God could have done it through angels. He didn't. God could have could just go around and touch people. Believe, 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 believe. He doesn't. What he does is he sends his church to live in the world, to be a bright and shining light. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God. Glorify our Father who is in heaven. Believers are not just individual people blessed with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We are collectively a kingdom of priests who have been given the awesome responsibility of reconciling sinful men to a holy God by means of the gospel. That's what the church is about. That's what it means to be a temple of God. He is fitting each one of us 
to serve in some unique and significant role in reconciling other sinners to a holy God in order that they too might become a part of this blessed kingdom, nation, and temple of the Lord. That's true unity. That's true unity. And I submit to you that any disunity, whether it be between husband and wife who claim to believe, whether it be parent and child who claim to believe, whether it be a group of people in the church with another group of people in the church who claim to believe, whenever disunity erupts and however it erupts, the question is not... How do we deal with every little specific issue? The question is, how do we bring these two factious parties back to the gospel? The gospel of repentance on the one hand and forgiveness on the other. We are called not to make peace. We've already been given peace. We're not called to make unity. We've already been given unity. We are in Christ. We are called to maintain a spirit of unity, Paul says, in the bond of peace, the glue of peace, which comes only as we align ourselves with the cornerstone, the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. We're about to come to the Lord's table this morning, and this message speaks directly to that, I think, because now we have some measuring line, a plumb line by which we can evaluate our own hearts. If you are a believer, if you truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, if there is evidence in your life that you are a child of God, then we welcome you to participate in the Lord's table this morning, whether you're a member of Calvary or perhaps just a visitor. Because we believe that everyone who belongs to Christ should participate in his table. But understand, believer, If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and yet you are living in disunity, you are living in some uh, uh, factious, uh, broken relationship in the body and you have not done everything in your power to set it right, whether it be confession of sin or whether it be forgiveness of sin, then Paul says you're unworthy. Just let the elements pass. Do not come to the Lord. Do not come to this table in an unworthy manner. And so may we take that to heart as we come to his table this morning. And Father, we praise you and give you thanks for this great work that you've done in us, unifying a people who would be natural enemies of one another. People who tend to hurt one another, we tend to deceive one another, we tend to mislead, we tend to treat one another badly, and yet you've given us the gospel.